we're back for our Sunday morning check-in with Yaakov Katz. As always, last week was an intense one in Israel. There's the desperation and anguish over the continued captivity of 134 Israeli hostages. Among them, many dual nationals and several Thai men. Beautiful red-headed Kfir Bibas is now one year old, and his big brother Ariel is four. There are more than a few octogenarians, the oldest being 86. There are women, most of them young, and we fear that all of them are being abused sexually, constantly, and mistreated physically, tortured psychologically. All of the hostages are starved and held in barbaric conditions. Their suffering, the agony of their loved ones, just corrodes the soul of this nation constantly. And the more time that passes from October 7th, the more information we are learning about the horrific conditions of their captivity and what happened when they were taken so brutally on October 7th. To a person, the survivors ask, where was the army? Why were we left all alone? And that the world attacks us and denies that these things even happened, says that we are lying, fabricating, accuses us of genocide. It's all too much. Almost five months on, after hundreds of dead soldiers, the gruesome fatalities of October 7th, and so many thousands maimed and grieving, Israel is reeling. That's what Yaakov and I talk about today. How the social and political divisions that were tearing apart civil society on October 6th and have been repressed for a few months are now exploding again and with renewed anger and rage. Hostages, elections, anger with the government, dismay with the army brass, disbelief with the ultra-Orthodox who are refusing to serve but insist that those who do already risk their lives in battle, should do more. There's despair, widespread. There's also determination to fix this mess. I wish, I wish I could be more uplifting, but the state of Tel Aviv promise to you is candor. I'm giving it to you straight and unfiltered. I'm Vivian Berkovich, former Canadian ambassador to Israel, and now living in the magnificent state of Tel Aviv. Stay with us. Good morning, Yaakov Katz. Good morning, Vivian. How are you today? Another day in paradise. I know. It's Sunday morning in Israel. Yaakov's smiling. And actually, just for our listeners, we're going to start posting video reels of Yaakov on Instagram because hearing him is one thing, but I want to give you the whole experience because <laughs> it's, an it's an next level. It really is. It'll be great. And he always comes up with so many good sound bites that we want to amplify. So we're going to be doing that on Instagram today. And I had also intended to focus today on your fabulous op-ed piece that ran in the Jerusalem Post. So, but we're not going to do that because... There's so much more to talk about. And the op-ed piece is like about the day after, which seemed to have been the topic of the moment towards the end of last week. But I think we have much more pressing and urgent things to talk about today. 
and we can leave the day after for maybe next week or the week or after. the day after. Or the day after, the actual day after. But do me, do me a solid and just outline very briefly, because it is important for listeners, what your position is, what your argument was in your op-ed piece on Friday with respect to where Israel goes on the proverbial day after. Look, the day after is coming up because the Americans are pushing Israel to start to more seriously articulate and outline what it is that we want from this. But more importantly is until now, Netanyahu has not revealed anything. And on Thursday night, for the first time, he presented the security cabinet with a plan, which was a bit vague in some parts, but created some opening maybe for the Palestinian Authority to come in, maybe not. He spoke about some non-Hamas or Palestinian local actor who would take over civilian life. Who is that? We can only imagine. But more importantly, what I found to be the most interesting part of it was something that they've been speaking about, but we haven't really seen it in writing, and that is the de-radicalization process that needs to happen in the Gaza Strip. And basically it needs to happen, actually, in all of the Palestinian Authority. And I think that we all need to remember is that Israel's fighting a war, right? It's trying to degrade and weaken Hamas to the greatest extent possible. It's trying to destroy the Hamas leadership. It's trying to eliminate and destroy Hamas infrastructure and fighters. The ideology, everyone always says, will remain, right? You can't kill an idea. Okay, great. But what you can do is over time, maybe change the ideas that people hold by. And to do that, though, you have to really roll out a comprehensive, real thorough, deep, penetrating, substantive plan. Now, that's not what we saw yet in what Netanyahu revealed to the ministers. But I think that if we all really give some deep thought to what the day after looks like, it has to include that. It has to, because otherwise we will be back here at the same point where we are right now. It might take five years, it might take 10 years, but we're going to get there because they will just regrow again. So it's not enough to just use a hammer against the nail. You got to think about some other tools that you have in your toolkit. And this has to be part of it. And speaking of finding ourselves back in the same place where we started, I'd like to turn now to what happened last night in Tel Aviv. Were you at the protest? No, I almost went. I almost went because I started to hear that they were people were gathering at Kaplan. So every Saturday, listeners, there's this rally in support of the hostages and hostage families. And it's in this area of a big artistic complex compound with a beautiful outdoor plaza that's been turned into what we call Hostage Square. And there are thousands who show up every Saturday night, and I'm there often, to hear speakers and support the families and the released hostages and those who are still there. I actually went to Hostage Square yesterday afternoon. It's, it's very calm and interesting, and you can interact with people in a lower kind of pleasant tense uh, on a Saturday afternoon than a Saturday night. So no, I did not go to Hostage Square or to Kaplan, but we all saw the images and we heard about what happened. So I just want to set the table a bit because you're talking about if we don't actually apply ourselves to the day after in Gaza and the West Bank, we're going to keep finding ourselves in this place and maybe even in a worse place. So if we step away from that and look at this country and the state of political and social relations. Before the war, it was pretty abysmal. And then the war starts and there was this, okay, we have to fight. We have to be unified. We have to win this thing. And winning, 
as we talked about many times, means militarily destroying Hamas, whatever that might mean. And of course, bringing our hostages home. And we were told, and we have been told for months, that we're unified and it's beautiful and we're going to stay unified. And the truth is, we weren't unified. We were just no. in a crisis. And the plaster cracks are really showing. And they really, it's been a kind of creeping con along the continuum. And last night, I think it just blew up. It burst out. Yeah. It burst out. And I think so, so I think so too. I, you know, you could see it coming in little dribs and drabs, but it really just, the volcano exploded last night. Lots of metaphors here. And you were watching the same images on TV and earlier today as I was from Kaplan last night. There were 22 protesters arrested. There was a released hostage who had been in captivity who was released, who was assaulted, the mother of a hostage. The police were engaging in what I understand to be tactics that are not actually considered to be legal, using water cannons at head level, going with their horses onto sidewalks and stomping down civilians, using their horse reins to hit people with. That's what went down last night in Tel Aviv. On the other hand, in Hostage Square, we had a sort of shard of optimism because of these negotiations in Paris trying to release some of the hostages. And these two locations are so close to each other. They're 500 meters apart in Tel Aviv. I really do like, Vivian, the way you connected between the two, because I think that really is part of the story, right? The Hostage Square, uh, a flicker of optimism because the talks in Paris seem to have reached some sort of framework for a deal that basically roughly looks at the release of about 40 hostages out of the 134. How many are alive? Exactly. We don't know, but would see the release of women, children, wounded, also young wounded. Israel's apparently insisting on getting back the female soldiers, some of them who were all very concerned have been inflicted with significant abuse while in captivity. And in exchange, Israel would hold back and basically stop fighting for a, a significant period of about five, six weeks and would release hundreds of Palestinian prisoners. Does it mean for the rest of the hostages? There's a lot of open question marks regarding this deal. However, there's progress. And it seems that a deal is going to be discussed this week with the cabinet. And we'll see where this goes. On the other hand, as you said, just a few hundred meters away, there is violence erupting on the street, and the police were overly aggressive, disproportionately. Using those water cannons is one thing, and I think is over the top. Using them against a mother of a hostage who's in captivity, the partner of a hostage who's in captivity. And who was a hostage herself for 55 days. And who was a hostage herself, who was released in one of the earlier exchanges. You're right. Thank you. And I just watched the video just before going on this call with you and watching how that police officer whipped, literally whipped an older man in the head, knocked him out, falls to the sky. I mean, what the hell's going on? And I hope, but I do fear, I want to hope it's not, but I fear that it is. This is Itamar Ben-Kvir, and he runs the police. And these are instructions that are being given by the political leadership of the police force to crack down on these people. There is a rift today within Israeli society that we have to be cognizant of, right? It comes on the heels of Bitsal Smutrich saying just this past week, the hostages are not the most important thing, right? And they're not that important at all, right? You know, this is a member of the security cabinet, one of the highest ranking people in the government, the finance minister, 
to talk that way, again, we could have debates about what's the right price to pay. We could have debates about what should we do and how do we get them back. But this type of language, they are leading this in a specific direction because they want to use their political clout to corner the prime minister and to prevent a deal that they think might be something that will work. Maybe stop the IDF. They want to ski the IDF, keep going, maybe smash their plans to resettle Gaza. Because remember, they were all at that Jerusalem convention just a couple of weeks ago talking about their hopes and aspirations to resettle Gaza. Maybe it will, it'll lead to a Palestinian authority presence in the Gaza Strip, which God forbid that should ever happen, according to these guys. So it's really, we're playing with people's lives. And I think that it comes at this point in time that you said very accurately is we were pretending that we were together when we really weren't. And now four months into this war, it's all starting to come out. And the bad blood was there and it's all out there now in, in our faces again. It's out there and it's worse because it's been repressed for so long. Among the speakers last night, I'm not sure actually at which location in Tel Aviv, was a reserve, I believe, Brigadier General. And he was saying that the reservists carried this country and have carried this country since October 7th. They've put their lives on the line. They're getting killed and maimed. Their lives and their families' lives are more than disrupted. And they've done everything possible and then more to try to restore national security and confidence. But he said, if we don't bring the hostages home, we will lose because bringing the hostages home is basically all that matters. It's a moral victory. It's what this country stands for. It's in our marrow. And we need motivated reservists. And we're going to need motivated reservists to put their lives on the line up north again very soon. And he said, we cannot fail at this. And there's this, this huge kind of disjunctiveness between, it seems, between government, such as it is, and I'll you know, use the word, the, the people, the, the, the broad public, because mm-hmm. I think there, even though we talk about our resilience and how optimistic we are and how we have no choice, but the truth is, People are very depleted and quite gloomy. So I thought that was really interesting how totally out there, unvarnished this man was in making these comments about the morale of the nation and how hostages are not just important, they are the apex. They are the most important thing we should be focused on. What do you think? Honestly, I am very torn about this whole issue. I I don't have good answers. And I think it's so complicated and so difficult because like I look at it now, for example, in very practical terms, get back hostages. But we have also the issue of Rafa, which has not been dealt with. And we know, according at least to the IDF, they're telling us that there are four Hamas battalions that are still deployed in Rafa, pretty much the bulk right now of their arm of their military force that remains not to mention the tunnels and potentially Sinwar himself and other Hamas leaders and other capabilities and hostages who are there. So if we get if we do a deal now to get back the hostages, and this is something that I've said all, for a long time now, which I think people don't necessarily understand, but but you're you're also saying the same thing is that we could make a deal now that we get back the hostages, but we won't have brought down Hamas. Is that a victory? Now, what if we take down Hamas in a greater way than we've done now, but we don't get back the hostages? Is that a victory? And I think that these are the issues that we're dealing with. And there's no clear victory here in the sense of the way we 
think of victory. We have to change maybe the definition of victory. That's a separate conversation. But the, th- this is, it tears. It, it tears you up because it's not, there's no good answer here. But I tend to agree with you, Vivian, that at this point where we are in time, I don't know how much better it will get if we keep going. And we do have to restore the social contract between our people and our state. We have to get these people home. So I'm perfectly on board, even if it means that we're going to have to stop for a period of time. And hopefully we'll have the will and the ability to renew at some point later. But we need to get these people home. It's interesting. You said you spoke about being torn. And every time we've talked about this, you've spoken in this way. And I think I certainly feel the same way. And I think most people do. I do want to mention, though, that there is uh, a Tikva forum. It's called the Tikva forum for hostages or families. Or, and it's people who uh, have loved ones who are hostages. It's a much smaller group in the Tikva forum. And their position is keep going, keep going, yeah. whatever their fate is. So I just want to be fair and represent that there. There is a different voice out there. There's but I think all, there's, Listen, that's the beauty of living in this country. Everybody's got absolutely. their opinion. Everybody knows what's right and everybody can say it. And I think that's amazing. I, I, personally I speaking, yeah, I think that we, we, we recognize the complexity. We recognize the, the difficulty. But we, at the end of the day, if we were pushed into a corner to make a decision, we'd have to go one way or the other. Are you concerned with what is going on in Israel? This is not just another crisis. State of Tel Aviv is committed to delivering superb and candid analysis, and we're offering a limited-time subscription special, a 33% discount from the regular fee of $90 annually, one year for only $60. Stay informed and stay connected with State of Tel Aviv. We are a reader-supported enterprise. If you value our work, please subscribe. It makes a huge difference. Stateoftelaviv.com. All one word. Now, back to the podcast. I did find the name and the quote from this gentleman who spoke last night. And I do want to take a moment to read it and also to identify him because I found it very powerful. Lieutenant Orr Scheinberg Reserve. He was seriously injured in Gaza. And he made a short speech. And this I'm reading from the Times of Israel, this quote. While we, the reservists, are carrying this country on our shoulders, this criminal government is sitting behind us. I hereby call on all reservists who may feel uncomfortable protesting during a war to do so. And he was clearly there saying that the government has to leave. They have no legitimacy, no credibility any longer. I know that he'll be disparaged as being a leftist anarchist traitor. And this is a guy who fought and was seriously injured. So like the dynamics of the dis- public discussion are also getting a little touchy and a little more complicated. So we have to touch on the Haredi conscription issue yes. because that's also in the mix and it's hugely inflammatory and important. And the government has to pass a bill by April. I'm not sure what, the, what date in April, either extending the exemption for ultra-Orthodox men, which applies to about 10,000 ultra-Orthodox men each year who are exempted from doing any form of military service. So the government has to decide, are we going to extend them for, as you said last week, another year? Or are they going to say, no, enough of this? Why don't you sketch out the very volatile dynamics in that particular issue, which is very much before the public at the moment? Look, the IDF draft law, they have to pass one because they don't have one. <laughs> and 
if they want to keep the exemption for the Haredim, for the ultra-Orthodox, they need to pass a new law that allows that because the existing law in the books requires the legal enlistment of every 18-year-old when they hit that age. So what's happened until now is that no government has been able to pass that law because of just how much of a hot potato and how controversial this issue really is. The draft of the draft law that has been proposed is one that will institutionalize a continued exemption for the ultra-Orthodox men, which is abhorrent when you think about the fact that, and I hate to be one who counts bodies and funerals, but we're not seeing funerals in Bnei Brak, and we're not seeing them in Kiryat Sefer, and we're not seeing them in Beitari Lis, which are ultra-Orthodox towns. We're seeing them in places where you have national religious and you have secular Israelis who are living, right? That, that, that's the people who are serving in the IDF. And right. every morning we wake up to the news of more people who unfortunately are falling, more soldiers who are getting killed, and there are no ultra-Orthodox among them. This, this cannot continue in this way. I think everyone understands that. And by the way, I'll just say that I think this has the potential to actually bring down the government maybe more than the argument over who's responsible for the October 7th fiasco. Because this is, I don't see how the Likud, for example, can agree to a law that gives the exemption. I don't know if Pitzal Smutrich even can agree to a law like this, because when you think of who his voters are, they are the people who are actually serving right now. But the ultra-Orthodox will bolt the government if they don't get the law that they want, right? This is what they care about. But do you think that the ultra-Orthodox don't actually see this, this unsustainable sort of situation that is going to lead to a full-blown crisis coming at them? They see it. But I think when you talk to them, you look at polling, you understand the leadership is terrified of losing control, terrified of losing the budgets, terrified of losing the political power. If the ultra-Orthodox go into the IDF as they should, what this will potentially lead to from their perspective is the end of these kids becoming ultra-Orthodox. And what I say to them is, you know what happens when my kids go to the army, you know what I'm worried about? That they're not coming home. Or if they're coming home, they're coming home in a coffin. So with all due respect, if the kids don't come back with the payas and the black hat, God forbid, I hope they come back alive because that's what counts. But we need a country and we need a military to fight and to serve. That has to be crystal clear after October 7th. And for some reason, for the leadership like Goldknopf and Aryeh Derry and these people who live in a disconnected reality, what do they not understand? And by the way, that's just talking about military service. And, you know, Vivian, I look at just one little example, right? Because we all look at what we have close to our table. I've been out of the army already for five years, ever since, you know, hit the age of 40, get discharged. My brother, who's 35, my youngest brother, just finished up 70 days of reserves, is being told he's coming back now in April for another 40 days, is being told that now he's going to serve till 46, not till 40, is being told now that he's going to have 35 to 40 days a year. They're now asking people to serve longer in the military than they were expected to under the two years and eight months is going up to three years, if not more. We don't have enough soldiers, but we do. We have. 10,000 plus people a year who are getting yeah. an exemption. They can serve. That's a couple of brigades right there. Why are we doing this? What is wrong with us? Again, it comes back to one issue. Sorry, one issue. Politics. It's about political survival. It's not about what's good for the country. It's about what's good for a couple of individuals. And you did leave out uh, Moshe Gaffney, the leader of UTJ, United Torah Judaism. I think he should be right in there. But I'm very glad you raised that. I was uh, going to jump in and make that point because I don't think that people all of our listeners may be aware of this, that in addition to contemplating in a month or so passing a law institutionalizing the exemption for the ultra-Orthodox from serving in the army, 
The other part of it is the ultra-Orthodox leaders are saying, as you just pointed out when you were speaking of your brother, okay, raise the limits for the army. That's cool. Everybody will serve longer. You'll serve to a longer age and you'll serve more days. Really? That's your answer to the lack of uh, military but just, might? Uh, but loads just, of just burden more on more the people on who us. are already carrying the burden. And we're going to be, as we say in Hebrew, we're going to be a bunch of friars and just deliver up our kids while your kid deliver blankets to the front. No. And right at the beginning of the protest movement, that was one of many things that was talked about, but it was the contract is broken, the contract between the country and the people. And we can no longer sustain, carry this unfair burden. If this does not change, then we will, it's always, it, it, October 7th cannot be in vain. The, the massacre and the murder and the pain and suffering and the destruction to our country cannot be something that is just, yeah, it's significant. We're changing the security paradigm with Gaza for a bit, but otherwise we're going to just keep going as we were going. No, people have to put their foot down. They have to say enough is enough. This is our opportunity for the people who are in the, 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 the middle class, the working class, the serving class. It is time for people to say enough. So let's go for a moment uh, before we wrap from the sublime to the ridiculous slash not so ridiculous because it's actually real, which is the just horrible theatrics were going on in the Knesset last week. The yelling and screaming and shrieking and finger pointing. There are times when I enjoy it immensely and I call it the best reality show on television, but not now, <laughs> not now, because it's this we have hostages and there's a war and the things that these MKs are yelling at each other about are just so beyond petty. And that was the very public fight between Benny Gantz and Gary Eisenkot on one side, who are members of the Knesset and also in the war cabinet, military men, and Yoav Gallant, the current Minister of Defense, and Prime Minister Netanyahu on the other side. And it all began or came into the public a week earlier when Prime Minister Netanyahu seems to have unilaterally decided and announced that we're not going to participate in any hostage talks. It's just a waste of time. Hamas's demands are delusional and there's nothing to talk about. And he went out to the press and the world and said that without even having the professional courtesy to tell Gadi Eisenkot and Benny Gantz in advance about his decision and what he intended to say. But Bibi went ahead and did this, and that really lit a match. I'd love to hear your thoughts about what transpired over the following week, climaxing in the, no, you take a polygraph test. No, you take, no, you go first. So in between, there was a document that Gadi Eisenkot had written to members of the cabinet, of the security cabinet, in which he basically said, we're not achieving the strategic goals, we're playing a tactical game. He issued some stern warnings and condemnations, I would say, of the way the cabinet has been functioning and operating. He claims it wasn't him who leaked it. Somebody else had leaked it, probably to embarrass Scotty Eisenkot and maybe also Netanyahu at the same time. And then after that, Eisenkot said, let's all do polygraph tests. Let's take lie detector tests, see who's leaking from the security cabinet. And we know that place leaks like a boat that's about to go under. It's just leaking all the time. Anyhow. If I may, one of the great things about Israel is every week you have cabinet meeting. And every on Sunday morning and every Sunday night, we get these kind of verbatim transcripts because yeah. someone's yeah. recorded it. 
on the news. It's great. Or, and someone being on that side for a long time of getting those leaks, it's somebody who usually has an interest in making somebody else look not as good as they are. I always say, take these things with a grain of salt. Here's the way I look at this issue. And to be honest, is Gotti Eisenkot and Benny Gantz went into this coalition just a couple of days after October 7th, I think it was October 9th or 10th, with the basic idea of we have to put our hand on the leadership steering wheel to make sure that things are done responsibly. And maybe in the beginning, they were part of making some of those decisions. They did bring about the original hostage release. I think that was something that they were very instrumental in. But ever since then, it seems that they are being dragged along. It seems that Netanyahu feels that he has utilized them to the max. But it seems that they're staying in because if you look at polling and even a poll that was taken, I saw by Ma'ariv on Friday, they're riding high, 38, 39, 40 seats with Netanyahu down at 17, 18. So I think that they understand that if they pull out of the government, they'll come under some criticism and they'll start to lose maybe some of that um, that following and that groundswell of support that they now have. So they want to stay in. I think they really have to ask themselves a tough question. Are they being played again by Netanyahu? And has the time come maybe for them to pull out? And I think and I fear that the answer is obvious to everyone, but they're clinging on for a bit longer. Why? Maybe politics, maybe some, maybe it's again tough for Benny Gantz to make a decision. Wouldn't surprise me if it is. But really, when you think about it, is it not time for them to come out and tell the truth to the public? And maybe that's what they need to do. Gadi Eisenkot can be all upset about this letter that he wrote that got leaked. But really, Gadi Eisenkot, you owe the people accountability. Forget about what's going on in the cabinet. Come talk to us and explain to us what's really going on. That's what you should be doing. So I'm, I don't feel bad for him. And I, I think the polygraph thing is a game to really cover up what's really happening here, which is it's time for these guys to split. Yeah, I thought the polygraph thing was a little juvenile. But I also want to mention that Gutty Eisenkot lost his son in Gaza he did? in yeah. early December. And he has come back fierce and fighting. So I think and hope that I agree with you. I think that it is time for them to leave. And it's time for Israel to use its voice in a unified way. And I dare say that I believe the majority would probably, maybe not, they don't all like Daddy and Benny, but I think that there is a strong feeling throughout the country that we need an election. We need an election. It's hard to achieve, but yes, we do need an election. We do. We need a government that is seen to have a mandate from the people, which I think the current Haredi religious Zionist, what's left of Likud coalition, doesn't. Okay, so it's going to be one hell of a week here, isn't it? It seems that every week for the last four and a half months or so, almost five now, these weeks are tough to bear. But They um, are. Yeah. Well, I hope that next week when we reconvene, Yaakov, that we're talking about the strong and and less strong points of a hostage uh, agreement that has been approved. Uh, I do believe that uh, both sides want to avoid fighting militarily during Ramadan, which is almost upon us, which would be an absolute disaster no matter how you cut it. But we also know that we're not going to see the release of all our hostages. And for the life of me, I can't wrap my head around. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you, Vivian. Have a great week. You too. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond podcast. We'll keep the dispatches coming as frequently as we can. If you like what you're hearing, please take a moment, rate us on Apple, 
Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can check out our full library of articles and podcasts at our website, stateoftelaviv.com. State of Tel Aviv is an independent media venture, and we rely on subscribers to support our work. If you are not yet a paying subscriber, please consider taking the plunge today. Each person really does make a huge difference, especially in these very challenging times in Israel. It is important that you stay informed and current and seek out a range of perspectives. This is a pivotal moment in Israeli history. It is not a time to be passive and disengaged. Thanks for sticking with me to the end. I'm Vivian Berkovich, signing off from deep inside the state of Tel Aviv. Thank you.